With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Most wanted podcasts on BBC Sounds. Where is the missing crypto queen's billionaire scammer? It starts to get very scary, very fast. How did gangsters drug baron finally get caught? He was taken completely unawares. Why were Burn Wild's environmentalists labelled eco-terrorists? They were getting away with it, but that wouldn't last. Uncover a new case while you're stuck in traffic. Listen to True Crime Podcasts on BBC Sounds. March 16, 1984, Thornton, Colorado. When seven-year-old Tracy Neve was dropped off late to her elementary school one cool Friday morning, her mother did not realise when she waved her goodbye that she would never see her beloved daughter again. Only hours later, tourists exploring would find Tracy's remains near a reservoir 40 miles away from where she should have been in the safety of her school. A bungled crime scene and lost DNA evidence would mean her murder remains unsolved almost 40 years later, tearing apart her family forever as they desperately seek for justice for their blonde, spunky little angel. This is Tracy's story. Tracy Marie Neef was born January 6, 1977 in Thornton, Colorado, an area where the family would remain for all of Tracy's life. Tracy would be the first child for proud parents, Gary and Susan Neef, and they would complete their family with a little boy, Gary Jr., four years later. The two siblings were super close and they did everything together. From all accounts, the family were the family you wanted to be a part of. They were happy and loved each other and they made the most of their lives together. Friday, March 16, 1984. The day started like any other weekday. Susan woke up early for her job delivering newspapers. Some mornings Tracy would go with her. Some mornings Gary Jr. would go with her. Other times both would. But on this morning, Tracy wanted the sleep-in. So it was just Susan and three-year-old Gary Jr. Susan would return home at 6.30 to drop her son off so Gary could get both the kids ready for school before he left for his job. He was a carpenter who remodelled homes in nearby Commerce City. Susan returned back to her route to finish her day's work. Seven-year-old Tracy dressing in her favourite jeans with a red and yellow belt and a shirt which read, I don't look for trouble, written across the front. Tracy then settled in front of the TV to watch the morning cartoons while she waited for her mother to return to take her to school. Susan returned home late because of a traffic accident on her route. Her normal routine was behind schedule. Tracy fastening the strap from her winter coat around her to protect her from the cold, 
and grabbed her red backpack and Pac-Man lunchbox. The family drove the six short blocks to Bertha Hyde Elementary School on busy Poe's Boulevard. Susan pulled up out front of the school. They were ten minutes late. It was 8.20 and the school had already started and all the children were in their classrooms. The school would lock their back doors after school started as a safety precaution, so anyone entering the building while classes were in session had to go via the front door to sign in at the front office. These back doors were the doors that Tracy would normally enter with her school friends, so when she jumped out of her mother's car and tried the back doors, they were already locked. Her only option was the front entrance. Susan watched her daughter walk through the front gates and out of sight. Relieved she had gotten Tracy to school, she drove off to return home. Never could Susan know that she would never see Tracy alive again. And there was no way that Susan could know that Tracy would never walk through the school doors, never reach the safety of inside her school. She would be picked up by an unknown person or persons and brutally sexually assaulted and murdered. And given it was 1984, security in schools weren't as stringent as they are today. And no policy was in place requiring school officials to call parents if their child wasn't in school. Tracy would be missing for nearly seven hours before anyone was aware. Sadly, that would be far too late to save Tracy's life. She would be already dead. That same day at 2.45, Susan left home to pick up her daughter from school. The children filed out as per normal, but Tracy wasn't in the sea of children, excitedly running to their parents to tell them about their day. Susan steadied her nerves. Tracy, being the helpful, responsible girl she was, maybe she offered to help her teacher clean up and was caught up. But after waiting for several more minutes, Tracy was nowhere to be seen. This was not like her daughter. Only a few weeks earlier, Tracy had had the school call her father at work when Susan was late picking her up. By the time he had got to the school, Tracy was standing next to her teacher, sobbing uncontrollably. But still, Susan held on to the idea that maybe Tracy had decided to walk home with a friend, even though Tracy had never mentioned this idea before. Regardless, Susan slowly drove the usual route back home, looking for Tracy. And while she saw several of her daughter's classmates, none were Tracy. Susan would make it all the way back home before turning around and driving the same route back to school, just in case somehow, oh please God, somehow, she missed her blonde-haired, blue-eyed, freckled little girl. Susan arrived back in time to see Tracy's teacher leaving for the day. This was when Susan discovered that Tracy hadn't been at school that day. In shock, she did not know what to do. Her world crumbled beneath her and she fell apart. Susan did the only thing she could do. She went home and called her husband at work for help. Gary knew immediately when the call came in from his wife that something was wrong. Before he heard her cries down the phone the desperation and panic in her voice. Gary drove home as quickly as he could, and the couple would spend the next 45 minutes searching the neighbourhood for any sign of Tracy, before finally at 4pm Gary called 911 to report his daughter missing. 
Officers knew immediately that this was urgent. Crucial time was lost and any further delay could be a matter between life and death. Police knowing if they were going to find Tracy alive and well, it needed to be soon. An official search of the area was launched and school employees were contacted and questioned as to what they saw that day. If they saw anything suspicious, a strange car lurking around that they had never seen before. But despite all their efforts, they came up empty-handed. Most Wanted Podcasts on BBC Sounds. Where is the missing crypto queen's billionaire scammer? It starts to get very scary, very fast. How did gangsters drug baron finally get caught? He was taken completely unawares. Why were Burn Wild's environmentalists labelled eco-terrorists? They were getting away with it, but that wouldn't last. Uncover a new case while you're stuck in traffic. Listen to True Crime Podcasts on BBC Sounds. What investigators and Tracy's family could never know at this point was that all their efforts were in vain. 1.30pm, two and a half hours before Tracy was reported missing, near Nederland, Colorado, which is 40 miles away from the Neef family home. A man walking his dog found a red backpack on the side of the road. There was no one else around at that time. Thinking that maybe he could return the lost backpack back to its rightful owner, He opened it to see if he could determine who it belonged to. But it was empty, except for a Pac-Man lunchbox. Lying just feet from the backpack was a discarded girl's coat. Assuming that they both belonged to the same little girl, the man placed the coat inside the backpack and left it sitting where he found it. He then turned around and headed back home. Now, if this man had continued walking off only a hundred feet further in the other direction, he would have been the one to discover Tracy's small body. And then at 4.45pm, when police were deep in their search for Tracy, at the same time, a couple visiting the area pulled over their car at Barker Reservoir in Nederland. When they spotted what seemed to be a young girl, she was lying down in the grassy area not far from where the Colorado Highway 119 cuts through Boulder. The girl looked too young to be alone, so they went over to make sure she was all right. The girl was lying on her back with her knees bent together, her hands placed palm down on her stomach. She was fully dressed except for one missing shoe. School supplies scattered all around her body. The young girl looked so peaceful, she could be easily mistaken for being asleep. But unfortunately, the young girl was not asleep. It was Tracy Neef and it was clear the girl was dead. Horrified, the couple raced back to their car and drove to the nearby Sinclair gas station to report their finding to police. Due to miscommunication, there was potentially crucial mistakes by law enforcement at the crime scene. Now, I do find it difficult to be critical of the quote-unquote mistakes. It was 1984, and forensic science was not really a thing. So preserving evidence may not have been at the forefront of their minds. But it is mentioned in several contemporary news articles, so I will address it in the episode. The Nederland police officer allowed the EMT crew to move Tracy's body to attempt resuscitation. Despite, by all accounts, it claimed that it was obvious that Tracy was already deceased. 
so she should have been left alone to protect the integrity of the crime scene. Two hairs would be found on Tracy's body, one on her shoe and the other on her pubic area. The one found on her shoe would be lost in the evidence locker in the weeks following, and therefore it would never be tested. The other would be contaminated in 1998, and it's no longer available for testing either. The coroner would determine the ligature marks on both of Tracy's wrists suggest she had been restrained by her abductor at some point. Another ligature mark around her chin, this is believed to have come from the strap from her winter coat, and it was used by the killer in an attempt to keep her quiet. Tracy had also fought back against her killer, and she had defensive wounds in the form of small scratches on her cheek and above her left eyebrow. Although Tracy was found still fully dressed in her jeans and t-shirt that she left home in, the coroner concluded that she had been sexually molested. That while there were signs of attempted sexual penetration, there was no semen found. This may be because of Tracy's cause of death. Her cause of death was determined to be due to asphyxia. Now it is believed her abductor never meant to kill her but had done so accidentally by tying the coat strap so tightly over her mouth and nose that she'd been unable to breathe and she suffocated. The theory is supported by the fact that Tracy was found fully clothed and that she was left so close to a major highway. That maybe her killer panicked when he realised that she was dead and he had tried to quickly dispose of her body. There appeared to be some care though with her disposal. It appeared that she had been placed carefully there, not just thrown there, like her backpack and coat. It appeared that he had thrown out her backpack and coat as he drove away from the scene. Tracy's autopsy showed that she was most likely killed in a two-hour window between 10 and 12pm, hours before anyone knew that she was missing. The police would later theorise that someone had seen Tracy in front of the school, Poe's Boulevard is a heavily travelled street that curved right around the diameter of the school. And then they had either grabbed her or managed to entice her to get into the vehicle, scratching her face as she fought against her abductor. And even though Gary was adamant that his daughter would never have willingly got into a car with a stranger, it is possible that she might have known the person who took her, or maybe she thought she knew her killer. School employees were questioned and ruled out, as well as Tracy's family. They looked into sex offenders in the area, but unfortunately this search would total 5,000 names. After a number of days working around the clock, this list would be narrowed down to 400. Still quite an overwhelming list of names. But despite investigating almost all of them, none were ever linked to Tracy's murder. But what if this was a child predator that just hadn't been caught yet, increasing the urgency of finding Tracy's murderer? Just prior to Tracy's murder, several girls in the Denver, Colorado area had been reported as being sexually assaulted by an unknown man who then let them go. Investigators believed it was possible that Tracy had been taken by the same man, but this time it went too far and he accidentally killed her. Investigators desperately wanted to find Tracy's killer before he had a chance to abduct another innocent young girl. But where did they start? 
No one saw Tracy leaving the school with anyone. There was no description of her attacker or a motor vehicle. There was nothing. And despite numerous pleads with the public to come forward with information that may lead them to Tracy's killer, the tips stopped coming in and all leads were exhausted. The investigation stalled and the case went cold. The next update in the case would not come until 1998. Forensic technology was much more advanced in the 14 years since Tracy's murder, and authorities made an attempt to DNA test the remaining strand of hair that was found on her pubic area. Remember, the other strand of hair found on Tracy's shoe was lost soon after she was killed. But unfortunately, the hair would be contaminated in the process, and what this meant was that wouldn't be available for the much more advanced testing that is available today. This testing that was done in 1998 only proved useful in 2006, when a Denver University DNA expert was able to use these results to exclude two long-standing suspects. Two suspects that happened to be the only suspects they ever had. Tracy's family were furious with this revelation. They never knew the hairs were found on Tracy until after they read about the foul testing destroying the remaining evidence in the media. Quote, That's all the evidence they had. Now with no DNA, we will never know who did it unless the killer confesses. Unquote. October 2010. The Boulder County Sheriff's Office began looking into a potential new person of interest. That possibly notorious serial killer Scott Kimball may have been involved or knew what happened to Tracy. Kimball was never considered a suspect prior to this, but family members of Kimball claimed that Kimball told his cousin that he helped bury a body of a young girl near Nederland in the mid-1980s, the same time period and the same location where Tracy was found 26 years earlier. By 2010, Kimball was serving a 70-year prison sentence at Stirling Correctional Facility for the murder of three women and his uncle in 2003 and 2004. But it is believed that he may have committed at least 17 other murders. The FBI setting up a special task force to deal exclusively with possible Kimball-related cases. Kimball would have been 17 at the time of Tracy's murder, he was living with his father and attended high school in Hamilton, Montana. But he did regularly travel back to Colorado to visit his mother. Kimball also spent a lot of time with a family friend named Ted Payton. Payton owned a cabin on the shore of Barker Reservoir, only a stone's throw away from where Tracy's body was found. Payton was later convicted of sexually assaulting Kimball, and he would serve six years in prison for this crime. But there are some problems with the Kimball is the murderer theory. The most glaring is that Tracy was never buried, rather found simply lying on her side. And it's not clear if he was even in the state the day Tracy was murdered. For what it's worth, Scott Kimball has denied all responsibility for Tracy's murder and the other murders which he's been investigated for. He claims investigators simply focus in on him because he is an easy target. So many times we see families and lives torn apart because of the disappearance or murder of a young child. 
The grief and the guilt are often far too much for families to work through and many families break down. The Neefs were unfortunately not immune to this. Susan and Gary Neef would separate and divorce about a year after Tracy's death, both blaming the other for the reason that Tracy was abducted and killed and it all became too much. Susan would leave the state with Gary Jr. and he would not see his father for 10 years. They have since stated in media interviews that even though they can no longer be together, they will remain a united front to see justice obtained for their daughter. Detectives firmly believe that this case can still be solved, but all they need is that one piece to complete the puzzle. It is likely there are still people living in the Denver area who have information about Tracy's murder. Investigators remain hopeful that one day they will come forward. If you have your own thoughts and theories on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook, like the page so you don't miss an episode, and join the discussion group to talk about your thoughts and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, or on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Ali. Hosting and production was also by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. The missing crypto queen's billionaire scammer. It starts to get very scary very fast. How did gangsters drug baron finally get caught? He was taken completely unawares. Why were Burn Wild's environmentalists labeled eco terrorists? They were getting away with it, but that wouldn't last. Uncover a new case while you're stuck in traffic. Listen to True Crime Podcasts on BBC Sounds.